Today's reading comes from Deuteronomy, chapter 9, verses 7 to 29. And you'll find that in the first half of the Bible, um, around page 188. It's entitled, The Golden Calf. Remember this, and never forget how you provoked the Lord your God to anger in the desert. From the day you left Egypt until you arrived here, you have been rebellious against the Lord. At Horeb, you aroused the Lord's wrath so that he was angry enough to destroy you. When I went up on the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord had made with you, I stayed on the mountain forty days and forty nights. I ate no bread and drank no water. The Lord gave me two stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God. On them were all the commandments the Lord had proclaimed to you on the mountain out of the fire on the day of the assembly. At the end of the forty days and the forty nights, the Lord gave me the two stone tablets, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord told me, Go down from here at once, because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have turned away quickly from what I commanded them and have made a cast idol for themselves. And the Lord said to me, I have seen this people and they are stiff-necked people indeed. Let me alone so that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven and I will make you into a nation stronger and more numerous than they. So I turned and went down from the mountain while it was ablaze with fire, and the two tablets of the covenant were in my hands. When I looked, I saw that you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made for yourselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. So I took the two tablets and I threw them out of my hands, breaking them into pieces before your eyes. Then once again I fell prostrate before the Lord for forty days and forty nights. I ate no bread and drank no water because of all the sin you had committed, doing what was evil in the Lord's sight and so provoking him to anger. I feared the anger and the wrath of the Lord, for he was angry enough to destroy you. But again the Lord listened to me, and the Lord was angry enough with Aaron to destroy him. But at that time I prayed for Aaron too. Also, I took that sinful sin of yours, the calf you had made, and burnt it in the fire. Then I crushed it and ground it to powder as fine as dust, and threw the dust into the stream that flowed down the mountain. You made the Lord angry at Tabera, at Massa, at Kibroth-Hatava. And when the Lord sent you for up from Kadesh Barnea, he said, Go up and take possession of the land I have given you. But you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You did not trust him or obey him. You have been rebellious against the Lord ever since I have known you. I lay prostrate before the Lord those forty days and forty nights because the Lord had said he would destroy you. I prayed to the Lord and said, O Sovereign Lord, do not destroy your people, your own inheritance that you redeemed by your great power and brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Overlook the stubbornness of this people, their wickedness and their sins. Otherwise, the country from which you brought us will say, 
because the Lord was not able to take them into the land he had promised them and because he hated them and brought them out to put them to death in the desert. But they are your people, your inheritance that you brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. Lord God, as we look at your words together, we do pray that this story wouldn't just be a historical story, that you would show us the relevance of it for each one of us today. And unless you do so, we would see your mercy, and we would see in Jesus Christ the perfect mediator for each one of us. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, last year the world was shocked when the South African Olympic hero, the Blade Runner, Oscar Pistorius, was arrested for the suspected murder of his girlfriend, Reva Steenkamp. The trial is still in progress. Uh, he's currently undergoing psychiatric tests to determine whether he was mentally incapacitated, whether he had diminished responsibility. And apparently the trial is going to resume next week and the test will be made known. Um, his fate will be determined by a single judge. Can't pronounce the name, it's not Pokazile Masipa. Um, so the whole country is following the case closely and coming to their own verdict of whether or not he was guilty. Well, our passage this morning is the whole country, the nation of Israel, who are on trial. Uh, their crime being rebellion against the God of the universe. Now, the good news is that they have a defence lawyer in the form of Moses, the one who got called to lead them out of Egypt. But Moses is not going to try and prove their innocence. He's not going to find some sort of mitigating factors, but he's there to plead for mercy. And the good news is also that the judge is a God of justice and mercy, who we will all face one day. But we will have an even better mediator to intercede between us and God. We have Jesus Christ himself. Let's first um, set this episode here in context. Israel describes back in chapter 7 of Deuteronomy as God's chosen people, those whom he has rescued from, from slavery in Egypt to bring into the promised land. And that was according to the promise that uh, God has made to, to their forefathers. So God brings the people to, to Mount Sinai. And he gives them there the, the ten commandments, the law, that is the foundation of the covenant relationship that exists between them. And it's that which enables them to enjoy the blessings of the covenant. And these commandments include a specific covenant, commandments, not to bow down or worship any idols. Now Moses remains on the mountain for 40 days when uh, God tells him to go down from the mountain because the people have become corrupt. So what exactly is the sin that the people have committed? Why is it so serious in the sight of God? Well, he's made uh, a golden idol in the shape of a car. And that was expressly prohibited in the second commandment. But what was the big sin in this commandment? Well, it's interesting that some translations say you should not make an idol, some say you should not make an image. I think the particular commandment is not so much about worshipping other gods, because that was part of the first commandment, wasn't it? You shall have no other gods before me. And I don't think the Israelites were really planning to, to worship the golden calf as another god, as if it had some sort of incredible power. 
they were worshipping this calf as a representation of the true God and what it appears that they are doing is taking things into their own hands they've been hanging around for 40 days uh, for Moses to come down and uh, impatience has uh, turned to fear and panic and um, maybe insecurity and they've lost their trust in God look at on they're probably saying you know we can't just sit around here waiting um, if he's going to take his time we need to carry on worshipping let's just find another way of doing that but I know let's make an image of God an image that we can, we can worship so the, the people made their own idea of God and the trouble is God is just too big for that isn't he God is the infinite creator God how can we make an image of him and if you think about it the same thing goes on today doesn't it people create their own idea of what God should look like sometimes you hear people say things like well, I don't need to go to church to worship my God um, or that, that's not the sort of God that I pray to and it's not outside the church inside the church as well people say well the God I believe in would not um, send his son to die on a cross it's as though we think we have the right to decide what God is like when actually he's revealed himself to us so I think it's also more than that I think what is driving the people is their need to know what is going on here um, they need certainty, they need information and I'm sure we've all experienced the, the frustration of being in a situation of having to wait and not knowing how long you're going to have to wait for I think one of my pet hates is um, ending up in traffic jams you know, in the motorway and um, how long are you going to be stuck here? Is it going to be 10 minutes? Uh, is it going to be a few hours? And so I'm onto the radio, onto the traffic reports, I'm trying to um, get onto the internet to find out what the problem is. I see there's an alternative route I can take um, to avoid this problem, taking things into my own hands. Faith in God is not just about obeying a set of commandments, it's about trust. It's a trust that God loves us, that he will do the best for us. And often the depths of our, our trust only becomes clear when things are not going well, when we have to, to wait, when we don't know how long it's going to be. What was Adam and Eve's sin about in the, the Garden of Eden? It was wanting the same knowledge as God. They didn't think they knew everything they could know. They had all they needed, but they wanted more, they wanted to know more and they believed the devil's lie that God was somehow withholding information from them that they needed King Saul, he was the first king of Israel um, there was a sin that caused God to remove his king, kingship from him well, I don't know if you remember a story in 1 Samuel 13, Saul was preparing to lead an army against the, the Philistines so he'd been given clear instructions to wait for Samuel Samuel would make the offering to God before they went into battle. What happened? Saul got impatient. Samuel was a bit slow turning up, so Saul decided, well, he would do the offering. Um, they had to get on with the battle. And when Samuel arrived, he told him he forfeited his right to be king. It can be uh, very inspiring reading Christian biographies. I remember when you read them from time to time, while I read during my sabbatical, that of um, George Muller who was um, a guy who um, built a number of orphanages in the Bristol area in the, the 19th century. Uh, it's an incredible story of how you live by faith 
Um, he was somebody who really took things to, to the wire. Um, there were days when there was literally no food left in the orphanage. And then food would arrive, money would arrive, and they'd be able to feed the children. Um, never did he appeal for money, but what he and his staff did was to pray to God that he would provide. And he always did. I think what is shocking about the, um, the Golden Calf episode, though, is that the people have only just witnessed God's amazing power and love. So he's rescued them from slavery in Egypt. And, you know, he's chosen them as a special people out of all the nations in the world. Not because of anything that was unique about them, not because they were better than anybody else, but because he loved them. And just because they have to wait 40 days, they lose faith and take things into their own hands. Doesn't it just make you want to shout out, what are you doing, you, you idiots? It's like watching uh, the Portuguese footballer Pepe, don't really saw that match. Head past the, uh, the German guy Thomas Müller on the ground and um, gets sent off, be red carded, leaving his team with 10 men um, against the Germans 2-0 up. You know, why do you do these stupid things? But of course we all make stupid decisions, don't we? We've all done them, we've all thought, why did I do that? And we see those close to us, likewise, making stupid decisions, wrecking their lives. And it may be a momentary lapse of judgment, it may be just a gradual backsliding, where we look on powerless to do anything. Well, for Israel, this wasn't just a one-off bad decision. Moses was pretty scathing in his condemnation of them, if you look uh, back at that, uh, that chapter. Um, the numerous incidents he, incidents he mentions, uh, and then he concludes in verse 7, that um, from the day you left Egypt until you arrived here, you have been rebellious against the Lord. And he repeats that again in verse 24. But it's the episode of the golden calf that he's reminding them of, even though it was the previous generation who were guilty. And Moses says that that episode aroused God's anger enough to destroy them. And God expresses it to, to Moses in this way. Look at his anger in verse 13. He says, Go down from here at once, because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They've turned away quickly from what I commanded them, and have made a cast idol for themselves. And just look there how he no longer refers to them as his people. These are now your people, Moses. They're nothing to do with me anymore. They're corrupted themselves. And this is not you or I sort of losing our temper and flying off the handle because we're feeling a little bit tired and irritable. This is righteous indignation. This is the proper response of a holy God to disobedience and lack of faith. To so people who have been quick to turn away from what God commanded them in short, rebellion against God. Now you might ask yourself, where might we be tempted to make the same mistake as the people of Egypt and Israel and take things into our own hands? Now maybe in situations where we just can't see the outcome and we start to, to lose faith in God, maybe we think, well he's not really in control or maybe we're just not prepared to wait for what God has got in store for us. Maybe it's waiting for the right job. Maybe it's waiting for the right home. Marriage partner. Maybe waiting for the right treatment or cure for our 
our illness. What about as a church though? Money is often a good test, isn't it, for the faith of, uh, of a church? Do we seek what God wants us to do? And then pray that he'll provide resources uh, for us to be able to do that. Or do we wait until we've got enough money and then decide how we're going to use the money with God? You know, but that may seem very prudent, but it doesn't demonstrate much faith, does that? And with the building project, what we try to do is be wise and sensible, but without trying to limit God. Now there was an element of faith involved in that journey and some may have thought, well that's just a bit reckless and others may have thought, well actually that was too cautious there was a balance there to be, to be struck but we will only grow in our faith we will only see great answers to prayers as we trust in God and in what he has in store for us we well, let's come back to the rebellion of the people of Israel and their lack of faith. How does God express his anger? We've seen that already in verse 13. He carries on. He says, I've seen this people and they are a stiff-necked people indeed. Let me alone so that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make you into a nation stronger and more numerous than they. Now what is Moses' response to that? Well, I guess he's really got three options here, hasn't he? He could say, good idea, God, I go along with that. Um, let's forget about them, they're just a bunch of wasters. They'll never change. Let's start again, we'll make a new start. Take some fresh material. At least that means I'll be okay. He could try and plead a minute's responsibility. He could say, look, well, look, I have been up in the mountain for a long time, you know. Um, uh, it's not surprising that I was beginning to get a little bit restless. Um, they're a good bunch really and um, they just don't need a leader and I wasn't really around them for them they've got a lot of potential just need to harness that um, you know, excuse, excuse excuse but actually Moses takes the third option which is to assume the role of mediator or intercessor and instead of attempting to plead the innocence of the Israelites he humbly submits himself to the mercy of God. Look at verse 18, what it says there. He falls prostrate, he falls face down before the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights and ate no bread and drank no water. That's the sort of thing you read about and think, oh, well, that's what he did in the Old Testament. Um, actually, coming back from Romania recently, there was a guy there who'd just done a 40-day fast. Um, and he said, well, 30 days were tough, but actually your body get used to it and spiritually it was an amazing thing to do but it shows the seriousness for Moses of the crime of the people and God's judgement on them and he, ju- he, know- he knows the response of God is justified he knows it's right he can't challenge the verdict he fears it says here the anger of God but he pleads for mercy he pleads that God would not punish them as he's threatened to do. And look at how he does this. He appeals to two things. And these have nothing to do with the people themselves. He's not, there's no sort of character reference for the people of Israel. What he does is plead based on the character of God. The first of these is God's faithfulness to his people. Moses appeals to the promise God made to their forefathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob that he would bless their descendants and bring them into the promised land. And he's saying, these are still your people. So look at verse 26. Sovereign Lord, do not destroy your people. 
they are still your people your own inheritance that you redeemed by your great power and brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand remember your servants Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and again in verse 29 they are your people your inheritance that you brought out God loved them so much that he had already saved them he would already brought them out of Egypt he'd exercised his power in doing so nobody else could have done that so Moses is saying why reject them now? And in the middle of the speech comes the, the direct plea. It's there, overlook, verse 27, overlook the stubbornness of his people, their wickedness and their sin. Overlook it, forgive them, have mercy on them, I pray. And then comes the second reason, which is the honour of God's name, which we've been thinking about earlier. Restore the honour of your name. Look at verse 28, otherwise... The country from which he brought us will say, because the Lord was not able to take them into the land he promised them, because he hated them, he brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. Moses is arguing, if God destroys the Israelites, this will be misunderstood by all the, the other nations. And the people of Israel are meant to be a blessing to all those nations. You can see what the reactions of the Egyptians would be, wouldn't you? If there was us thinking that this all-powerful God had rescued his people, and all he's done is take them out and go and kill them. That sort of thought that sort of brought dishonour on God's name. And after having made his plea, his appeal for mercy, the response from God is surprisingly brief. Have a look on at verse 10 of chapter 10. Having said, this is now two new stone tablets, he's renewing the covenant. He then says in verse 10, well, Moses says, Now I stayed on the mountain forty days and forty nights, as I did the first time, and the Lord listened to me at this time also. It was not his will to destroy you. Go, the Lord said to me, and lead the people on their way, so that they may enter and possess the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Israel can breathe again. Their continuing existence is safeguarded. So of course justice still needs to be done. Uh, Moses had gone down the mountain, he smashed the tablets, they've been broken, the covenant had been broken. The calf is destroyed. And if we read, read the fuller account of this episode in Exodus, what happens is he, he tells the people to repent. He calls on them to repent and they don't do face God's judgment. And Moses even appeared to offer to make atonement for them himself. This is what Moses asked in, in Exodus. He says, please forgive their sin. But if not, then block me out of the book you have written. He asked God to forgive them and he offered himself as a sacrifice. Now God rejects his offer and the reason is no doubt that that sacrifice would not be sufficient. There's only one sacrifice that God could accept and for that we need to turn on to the book of Hebrews in the, in the New Testament. Come with me to Hebrews chapter 7. It's got a church Bible that's page 1205, verse Verse 23 says, Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. So because Jesus lives forever 
He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus is the perfect priest, the perfect mediator. If we carry on over the page, in verse 26, it says, Such a high priest meets our needs, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the nations, above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Jesus Christ gave his life. This is Moses offered to do. But because Jesus is holy, blameless, pure, he is the perfect high priest. And his sacrifice is sufficient for, for everyone. The final, complete, once for all atonement has now happened. The nature of God hasn't changed, but the mediator has. But as we looked at last Sunday evening when we were considering that one of those difficult questions of well, what about the whole genocide um, passages there? We were saying it's not just the extremely evil who will be judged. It'll be all those who have rejected God's rule in their lives. There will come a day when we will all face God's judgment. And if we acknowledge our sinfulness, if we repent of it and trust in Jesus Christ in order to be acquitted before God, then the good news is we will experience God's forgiveness, his mercy and his love. So whatever things you've done in your life, if you're still sitting and thinking there are things that you're just totally ashamed of, things you've never even admitted to anybody, things that maybe you're thinking they could be beyond forgiveness, the death of Christ is sufficient to make atonement for all of those. As you trust in him, you'll be able to stand on the day of judgment, not rely on your own excuses. They'll carry no weight. But rely on what Jesus has done for you. And you'll be shown mercy by the Almighty God. Well, having announced God's forgiveness, what happens next? It is repentance, isn't it? It's a turning away, away from worshipping other gods, or other images of God. And worshipping God his way, the way he wants us to worship him. And so Moses says back in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 12, have a look there. This is the way we, you should now walk Israel. He says, and now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. And then it carries on with the great description of God's compassion, which um, Jeff will be looking at next week. But all we have here is a new start. Moses reminds them that the commands that he has given them, God has given them, are actually for their own good. That God knows best. That um, don't assume that you somehow think you know better. We can't ask God for forgiveness and then just carry on living our lives the way we did before. If we've been genuinely converted then the Holy Spirit will come and live in us. He will give us a desire to follow God's law, God's way. He'll make us realise they are actually for our own good. As we come towards the end, the mistake of the the people of Israel was to disobey God's laws. It was to take things into their own hands. It was to make an idol to worship simply because they were impatient. They just lost their trust in God. 
And in so doing, it gave Moses an opportunity to plead on their behalf, to appeal to the character and the promises of God in the process. This wasn't Moses arguing with God, not arguing with God against his will. No, this was acknowledging God's righteous anger, but calling on God's mercy. And we need to remember both of those aspects of God's character as well. His righteous anger, his justice, but also his mercy. If Moses had simply accepted God's righteous anger, he could have said, just, well, yeah, go ahead, destroy them, we'll start again. But he didn't. He pleaded with God 40 days and 40 nights. He fasted and he prayed. He put his own life on the line. He knew God was a merciful God. And he himself loved the people. He didn't, wasn't prepared to abandon them. It wasn't that Moses was somehow changing God's mind either. It, wasn't that, it was that God was using Moses to achieve what God actually wanted to do all along, which was to show his mercy to the people of Israel. And the challenge I want to leave you with this morning, if you are already a Christian here, is how do you respond to the sin of the world in which we live? Because if we are Christians, we could just wash our hands of it and say, well, I'm okay. When it comes to Judgment Day, I'll be alright. God will deal with it justly. Or we could plead with God for those who are still lost that God would forgive them based on his mercy. We could ask God to use us to achieve his plans in accordance with his merciful character. And to do that, we do need to pray that God will give us a greater passion, a greater urgency in our prayers. And a greater commitment of time, of energy, of money into our mission. It's good just to spend a bit of time now praying for those who God has put on your heart. Um, praying that God will put others on your heart. And those that don't yet know God's mercy, those we love, those we want to, to see saved. Let's just plead with God now for his mercy. For a moment of quiet. Father God, we thank you for your love and concern for us. We are sorry where we have chosen to go our own way, where we've been impatient and not trusted in your, your goodness, your perfect plan. And we thank you that we do have in our Lord Jesus Christ one who intercedes for us, who has already paid the price for us in, who's turned aside your wrath. And we pray for those we know who have not yet put their trust in, in him, that they too may know your love and your mercy and give us the passion to pray for them persistently and urgently whilst they still have the opportunity to repent. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Amen.